Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Today is a momentous occasion. Bigger than the moon landing. Bigger than electricity. Bigger than sliced bread. It is the 100th episode of Whining About Herstory. That is well over 200 women, well over 200 hours of historical hilarity, and around 100 bottles of wine and at least one bottle of vodka. And to celebrate, we are doing the most badass thing that two 30-year-old women with a podcast can do. We're having a princess wine party. What's up, bitches? Woo, I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And thank you for joining us for our 100th, 100th episode. I'm so excited. I can't believe it. And I'm and a pretty, pretty princess. We are pretty, pretty princesses. We have tiaras. We have our like cute little princess prom dresses. We have princess cupcakes. Woo. And we've we got a hundred dollar bottle of wine. Oh my God. Are you serious? Yes. Are you fucking serious? That's well, from did- Joe? No, I bought this. Oh, I was like, Joe, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> no, because we did $50 for our 50th. I'm not. No, gonna- we didn't. Yeah, we did. Well, uh, 50-ish dollars for our 50-ish. 50th episode. And so I did $100 for our 100th episode. And Justin said, that's what we're going to keep doing. So every, every no, every, every entity of 50 is going to be a $50 bottle of wine. And then every en- entity of 100 will be a $100 bottle of wine. Oh, okay. Because I was like... We but can't afford to do this podcast for no. another 50 episodes. According to the guy at the liquor store, like the owner, I'm pretty sure, he said that this is a $100 bottle of wine from the Columbia Valley that drinks like a $400 bottle of wine from Napa. Ooh. So it's supposed to be Is real, Napa like... Re- well, that's like the home of winemaking. I, I get that. I know Napa's a big deal, but like, I don't know. Like Columbia Valley versus Napa. I don't know the comparisons. It's been a hundredth episodes. I know nothing about wine. Right. <laughs> but here, I'll, I'll read the actual someone's description of this wine. Are you ready? Yes. So it's called Corliss. As I said, it's a Cab Sauv, which is Emily's favorite. She loves me. So it's this bright, dark, ruby red, blackberry, licorice, wild herbs, and bitter chocolate on the nose with some complicating savory notes. Fine-grained, glossy, and super concentrated. Boasting bulletproof flavors of dark berries, bitter chocolate, cocoa powder, and sexy tarn-sod spices complicated by a subtle savory quality. This very dark brooding wine is still an infant, but already delivers noteworthy sex appeal owing to its velvety claret-like texture. Finishes with big sweet tongue and tooth-dusting tannins and terrific mounting length. Is this and then, and then the guy, fuck us? And then the guy goes on to talk about pH levels, which is something we don't care about. This wine sounds like it's about to fuck us. Right. It's but I, I hate how it's like, it's just an infant, but it's sexy. I'm like, don't say that. Right. No, Shame and, on uh, you. This is the first bottle of wine I've ever actually let like breathe before we drank it. Because the guy at the store was like, make sure you let it breathe at least two hours, if not three. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, you told me to. So I actually will instead of when I'm reading the bottle. And it's like, chill. And I'm like. Ooh. We have no chill. So how dare you? Cheers to a hundred episodes. Cheers to a hundred episodes. I almost said Blink. cheers to a hundred years, and I'm like, that, no. <laughs> it feels like that. No. Ooh, I like that. Oh, I actually oh. really like that. It's like building in my mouth. It's the it's the um, 
terrific mounting length. I was going to say, and it's it bulletproof does. It, like, and velvety. Like, this one's coming from all sides. It really does. It, like, coats your mouth. And yeah. then, like, it's really good. Oh, we have to finish this. We can't let it sit in our wine bottle graveyard. By the way, for uh, our audio-only listeners, this is our special video episode, which you can get access to for as little as $1 a month. So every month we record one of our episodes. We add the V to our A, and uh, we usually do fun dress-up themes. Today we are Pretty Pretty Princesses with a pink pug tablecloth and princess cupcakes, and we've got our whole wall of wine behind yeah, we us. turned. Yeah, we've been too lazy to, like, move the whole setup. But, Until now. Yeah, because because my husband changed how our like lights and stuff are set up in the office or the filming room. Um now it's a lot easier to move the camera and stuff. So yep. we also have uh golden balloons that read a hundred. And we see blew it on them our ourselves. We did. Yeah, and the zeros look like golden vaginas, which wholly appropriate. You know they did that on purpose. Nothing says congratulations like a couple of big golden vaginas. <laughs> So Kelly, what uh, what princess do you want? Um, I want purple. You want like, purple? So it's Rapunzel. Ah, oh, do you want okay. Rapunzel? We can I switch did. rings. No, it's fine. I'll take Belle. Here's the thing: I like vanilla cupcakes better, but I love Rapunzel. Like it, it's funny because you I heard didn't hear folks. I was willing to trade rings yes. with her. So when I bitch about it later on our Twitter account, you guys can know that I'm in the you wrong. You guys can back me up. So we have we have Belle, we have Rapunzel, we have Tiana, Aurora, Cinderella, Ariel. Who are your favorite princesses and why? That's a really good question. Like, I, I do really like Rapunzel. Because oh, she kind of like... I realize I didn't bring napkins. She kind of like The one thing I forgot. Her own shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. I love Rapunzel because she's a little spaz. Right. Like when she gets, okay, in the scene where she like goes outside for the first time, she's like, this is the best. I am the terrible daughter. Yeah. I'm oh, never yeah. going I'm like, back. that would 100% be me. I'm like, get out of my head, bitch. <laughs> do you want a Kleenex? Yeah, I'll take a Kleenex. Because us millennials are killing the napkin industry one Kleenex at a time. No, it's because we use paper towels instead of napkins. And Kleenexes. I really like Pocahontas. That's another. Like, I, oh, I really she was like, one of my favorites growing up. I'm gonna say it's probably a lot of the newer princesses I like because they're generally more empowered. You know, yeah. it's not a man coming to save them. Like, I do like the original princesses, but you know, there's something about women in, in being empowered. Yeah. How I, about you? Who's your favorite? Uh, so as far as modern princesses, Rapunzel and Moana are up there. Moana, oh, yeah, that I was such a good Moana. movie and the music was so good. I heard something really depressing about Moana the other day. No, what? That someone thinks that she, that it's, that she died during that storm, that first initial storm she's in when she's out on her boat and that the rest of the journey is her going to the after, is Maui bringing her to the afterlife. You know what guys? I get it. It's fun to be edgy and everyone's dead. Stop it. It's so unoriginal. I'm so bored of it. And it's just a bunch of assholes trying to ruin my favorite movies. Anyway, as far as old school princesses, Ariel, Belle and Pocahontas were like my favorites. I had, I I was actually having a conversation with a friend the other day about like how I used to have Pocahontas undies when I was a little kid. And I had these pants that were like a white towel material for after my swim lessons. And I would put the pants on my head and because I had super short hair. I had the bowl cut as a child. 
mom, why did you do that to me? She did. She's like, I'm not brushing your fucking hair. Right. Just like, I'm keeping not it short. <laughs> Everyone's going to think you're a boy. It's fine. So anyway. So I would put the pants on my head and I would take like a Pocahontas hair tie that I demanded my mom buy for me just because they were Pocahontas. She's like, why your hair is so short? And I'm like, and whose fault is that mom? <laughs> but I would like tie my hair back in a fake po my hair my pants back in a fake ponytail and I would stand in my Pocahontas underwear on my dresser and just do this. Oh my God. I, love I would do the wave. And then when I did swim lessons, I had a Pocahontas swimsuit and you know, when she dives off the cliff and she yeah. starts out like with a swan dive and then moves into an actual dive. You would do that. Well, except I wouldn't make it to the actual dive. So I was just doing belly flops in the pool and everyone's like, doesn't that hurt? And I'm like, no, cause I'm Pocahontas and nothing hurts. Oh my God. You're right. I really like Belle as well. Yeah. I, I always I was, loved her. I wasn't a big fan of Ariel. I loved it. Cause I loved swimming. That I loved sense. being a mermaid. Although now I'm like, she's like, I love him, daddy. You are 16. You don't know shit. <laughs> Just a little note to all you 16 year olds. We love you. You're very empowered, but you're idiots. <laughs> you're idiots. Yes. We love I you was anyways. an idiot. You're an idiot. And you're going to turn 30 and be like, yeah, I was an idiot. By the way, I'm sorry if my voice sounds weird. I think I'm starting to lose my voice a little bit. So if I sound a little different, that's why. I have to go first today. You do. And so as a special treat uh, and a callback to our 50th episode, we are revisiting Minnesota Mavens. So today, Kelly and I each picked a Minnesota gal to cover for our 100th episode. Oh, because, excited. And you know what's crazy? I learned things about our state I didn't know. I learned things about our hometown that I didn't I know. I didn't do that. But... What I think is interesting, and I think this is because we tried to cover women from all over, but we never cover Minnesota women except for like our 50th and our 100th. We have say, to choose Minnesota women. We never do it on accident. I just want to say the people of Patreon just got, got to watch me lick all, all of my frosting off of my ring. That's okay. That's what they're paying for. <sighs> <laughs> All right. So, Kelly, who are you covering today? I'm covering Nellie Stone Johnson. Ne oh, that's a name. Right. And this frosting it's is delicious. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh my I have to God. talk. I'll eat my cupcake later. Oh, my God. Um, so she was born Nellie Saunders Allen. Uh, she was the oldest of eight children. Jeez. Uh, unlike the last Minnesota woman I covered, she actually was born in Minnesota. She was born in Dakota County uh, near Lakeville, which I actually know oh, where that is. Oh, I used to is. nanny yeah. out there. No, wait. Yeah, I used to nanny there. Yep. Yeah, nice little suburb. You okay over there? I'll, there were a bunch of sprinkles on the side of my cupcake, and I'm trying to wipe them off into my palm so I can, so can eat, eat them. them. Yeah, yeah that's I'm not valid. throwing them. So she was born to William and Gladys, who were actually one of the few black farming families in Minnesota in the early 1900s. Oh, shit. Yeah. All right. When did you say this was? The 1900s? 1900s. Okay. So she was born December 17th, 1905. Cold, cold day. Yeah, probably. You can just assume it was cold. It was December in Minnesota. It's right. cold as shit. So Nellie's family owned... Uh, their first two farms between 1905 and 1918. What was cool is her mother was a college-educated school teacher from Kentucky. Damn, girl! She had African-American, French, Irish, and American Indian ancestry. So that's what her mom had. And then her, her father was just African-American. Um, their family ran a dairy farm, and her father was involved in the Nonpartisan League, or the NPL, which is a, was, I think, a political organization which was founded in the 1900s in the United States. The guy who formed it used to be the mem uh, member of the Socialist Party. 
So he formed this nonpartisan league on behalf of small farmers and merchants, and it advocated for the state control of the mills, grain elevators, banks, and other farm-related industries in order to reduce the power that corporate political interests from the big cities like Minneapolis and Chicago had in these dealings. I have to say... I didn't think that's where you're going with that because I'm like, oh, nonpartisan. I wonder what that's about. It like, right? I it know. doesn't read farm stuff to me. Also, these cupcakes are bitching. Brava, Target. Jesus Christ. That's funny. So her father joined the Nonpartisan League, helped organize farmers, and co-founded the Twin Cities Milk Producers Association. So she's coming yeah, from like did. people getting <laughs> shit done. Yeah, very driven, uh, involved people. And she became involved in a very young age. When she was thir- only 13, she began distributing literature for the nonpartisan league on her way to school. Like, so she was just like, here, have a flyer. Here, have a flyer. Oh my God, that's so cute. She attended public schools in both Dakota and Pine counties. And eventually her family moved to a larger farm east of Hinkley, which is North Minnesota, in 1919. She would get up, milk cows every morning, and she would earn money by trapping muskrats and mink and then selling them to people for their fur. I love muskrats. I see them. I see them where I go hiking all the time, and they literally look like these fat little like toasted bread rolls. I like to call them. They're like mini beavers because like they they do have they do have a tail, but it's definitely not as big as a beaver. And they kind of do. They look like little mini beavers. They do, and they're so fat and cute. And you can see them like booking it through the water. It's oh, I love muskrats. They're They're so cute. I would definitely back then. I would wear a muskrat and just be like, "Who's you, baby?" (laughs) Uh, She would go on to join the NAACP when she was a teenager. Oh, nice! And that's a national association. National National Advancement National Association for the Advancement of Color People. People. We talk about it way too much for us not to know that off the top of our heads. She would go on to attend Clover Township High, which only taught up to 10th grade at that time. Um, However, the family ended up moving to Minneapolis, and she started work as a live-in nanny. Exactly, right? Yeah, like me! Um, And then she moved into her aunt and uncle's house in North Minneapolis so she could take courses at the University of Minnesota. Go Gophers! (laughs) Were they the Gophers then? Have they always been the Gophers? I think so. I guess I don't know. I wonder where the idea of school mascots came from. Like... Where does that, because on our history happenings, our last one, you talked about sororities mm-hmm. and that was really interesting. I'd love to know more about mascots and why. Why? Why? why <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of weird ones out there. So she initially went to school for agriculture and then she switched to chemistry intending to become a pharmacist. And then she gravitated towards social and political science, which makes sense like from the family she's coming from. They're very involved. Um, while taking classes, she was taught by E.W. Zyberth, who I don't know who that is either. Great name, though. Um, Although, it, oh, there's a better name it coming. It reads E.W. Zyberth, <laughs> which sounds like Sideberth, so I get it. Right. <laughs> she also met Paul Robeson and Swan Assarson. I'm not even joking. It is spelled Ass Arson. Ass Arson. Assarson. So, is, that so, even, is that Norwegian? What is that? Ass arson? But um, Swan was a radical just Was like, he an arsonist know, of right? acid? <laughs> no. What the fuck? But, you know, she, she kind of swung toward the more radical views herself. And so he believed that workers should form a society 
And he began mentoring Nellie in that kind of philosophy. Okay. Nellie did go on to finish her schoolwork and got her GED in 1925. Um, She would also meet with other communist radicals and socialist union organizers. And this was a huge thing in the 1920s. Yeah, it was. And it was, yeah, it was very much about like taking the power away from big corporations and putting them in the power of the people. We understand communism, not a good idea, does not work. It was really popular at this time, even in the United States. When she got after school, she got hired as an elevator attendant at the all-male Minneapolis Athletic Club, which I know exactly where that is. Oh, it's still there? Yeah. Is it still all-male? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. So she originally earned $15 per week, and there, and at the West Hotel, where she eventually got another job, she experienced a lot of workplace discrimination and faced anti-union employers. She believed the worst discrimination was economic, but trusted that organizing and collective bargaining could improve her workers' lot. So she was very pro-union, and Swan very much encouraged that and kind of like pushed her toward organizing the the workers at her hotel and her father actually was also very encouraging of her activism so eventually unfortunately at the athletic club her wages got cut to 12.50 and so she began quietly organizing not only the workers at the athletic club she was working at but other Minneapolis hotel and restaurant workers as well to form a union. So just real quick, I kind of forgot what time period we're in. So she was getting paid 15 bucks an hour. No, $15 a week. But, oh, sorry. And then she got cut to 1250 a week. If I said per hour, that was my bad. Okay. Cause I'm like, man, 15 bucks an hour nowadays is pretty damn good. How much money was she making a week? But like, to be cut $2, like $2 was a lot of money at that time. If I got cut $2, today of like my hourly i throw a fucking fit right i'd lose my shit i would uh, yeah yeah so and it's because she's black and also because they can and she's a woman and she's a woman intersectionality so all that is going on and then a few years later she joins the university of minnesota's young communist league like we said, very popular at the time. Yep. And in 1931, she would go on to marry Clyde Stone, which clearly, you know, she took his last name or, you know, part of it. Nellie Stone. Right. However, that marriage would eventually go on to end in divorce. And that's it. I would still keep that's, the name, though. That is all I know of her or like, him. That's a great last name. Yep. So now she's Nellie Stone. So also during this time with her father, they delivered potatoes and rutabaggers and other produce off of his farm to worker kitchens during a strike in 1934. Oh, okay. So the, so the workers are striking and they're they're providing food to keep them going. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the hardest parts about striking is that, you know, how do you pay for your, your home now? Like you are dependent on that wage and it's, it's, you're at a disadvantage as the worker demanding better conditions or more money. Yeah, it's unfortunate. At this time, so this is a few years later when Nellie, after Nellie began kind of talking to people about unionizing, the Minneapolis hotels and restaurants were still not organized, even when the National Labor Relations Act emboldened workers to take action in 1935. So that was kind of a a right to unionize kind of an act that okay. happened in Minnesota. And then the New Deal law also changed the landscape of work workplaces, and that protects even more so organizing and collective bargaining between workers and companies. And that was part of uh, FDR's like depression new deal. Yep. Okay, cool. I, sorry. I I, I know I realize I'm interrupting. I think it's really cool. Like we, we, 
visit the New Deal in all the in a lot of our stories so frequently. Right. It, it, it always seems to like come out of nowhere, but it's one of those things that you learn about and you're like, well, that's a thing. And then through these stories, you get to see how it kind of how it aff- actually affected things. Yeah, all the different outlets because uh, when I covered Pudgy Stockton. The beach, Muscle Beach, where she worked out, that equipment was put there thanks to the New Deal. This is a part of the New Deal, you know? Isn't it insane? And we can all thank Frances Perkins. What's up, girl? So this extra law that kind of came into place also uh, motivated Nellie and other African-American leaders like Anthony Cassius and Albert Allen Jr. to talk to the few union members that were already forming and educate their co-workers in the city's downtown hotels. At this point, um, the hotel worker and restaurant workers union is formed. Everything's, you know, going along. The ink has dried. Yep. So this new law really motivated Nellie and other African-American leaders in the community, such as Anthony Cassius and Albert Allen Jr., to talk to the members of pe- like people that were already in unions and then educate their own coworkers in the city's downtown hotels to kind of like make a bigger union, you know, like kind right. of start bringing the African-American community into the unions, which actually worked. And Cassius in particular, led the Curtis Hotel workforce into the um, Hotel and Restaurant Workers Union, and his leadership sparked organizing of other hotels' work sites. Albert Allen Jr. championed efforts at the Athletic Club, where Nellie also worked, and so she really like got on board with that, and she really helped organize like the other shifts that he wasn't working. Did she get her two dollars back? I don't know from those fucking bastards. <laughs> um, so out of that, they became the local number six sixty five of the hotel employees union, and they quickly chartered the Athletic Club as an integrated union. Okay, so they organized all of the employees, not just the African-American employees. Johnson was one of the first women to sit on her local contract negotiating committee, which is great. Gradually, things actually began to change in the hotel industry. Wages increased, uniform job classifications ended racial and gender pay inequities. I mean, as they were like, they could. Hey, if you're a bellhop, this is what the salary is. Exactly. Not if you're a black bellhop versus a white bellhop versus or a, a female, male. Yeah. And, yeah. At the Athletic Club, Nellie pushed to end in-house segregation of eating and locker room facilities. And in 1936, she became a member and then of the vice president of her chat, that local 665 chapter of the union. And she was the first woman vice president of the Minnesota Culinary Council as well. Nice. Go get it, Nellie. Right. She's, she's definitely like making waves. Um, She would go on to meet the future vice president, Hubert Humphrey, in 1941, so before he was vice president, and she met him at the Duluth State College. She's like, Hubert. Is it Hubert or Herbert? Hubert. Hubert. She she definitely asked that. She's like, can I call you Hubert or is it Herbert? Let me tell you some shit. Let me lay it down for you because shit is going down. And she would actually later go on to mentor him in civil rights issues. I don't know if it was while he was president or just later after she met him. It didn't say. Um, she was also on the committee that would merge the Minnesota Democratic Party, which was a re- which was really moderate at the time, with the more radical Farmer Labor Party, forming the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party, or the DFL, which still exists today. I was going to say, that is on all of our ballots. She was also then elected to the library board, and became the first black person to be elected as a citywide official in Minneapolis. Can I just say cheers to libraries? Right. Woo-hoo. My mom was a librarian, so 
1947, she would marry for the second time to a man named Lee Johnson. So that's how she got her. I like that she kept both of their names. Okay. So she was... uh, Nellie Stone Johnson. That's like what she's known as. I love it because it sounds like her name is telling a story. Like, my name is Nellie Stone Johnson. Like, I got a Stone Johnson here. (laughs) I think that's how Emily takes it. Well, because I always... I, I know Johnson is obviously a colloquialism Johnson Johnson, for family company. It's a penis, Kelly. I know, but it's that's penis all to I penis, a family company. Anyway, but uh, President Lyndon B. Johnson, he was infamous for whipping his dick oh, yeah, out because he had such a big constantly. Dick. And like that, you guys, you can look it up. It's all like public record oh, now. Yeah. But you can hear him talking to his like tailor about like taking out his inseam because his cock is so fucking big. So I'm just like, that's how I remember him because I was like. Lyndon B. Johnson, who's whipping out his Johnson. So I literally can't separate. (laughs) Like, Johnson can't just be a name to me anymore. It's always Lyndon B. whipping out his Johnson. That's funny. Um, This marriage would also end in divorce, and there was also no other information about this marriage or this husband. So, doesn't matter. Moving on. We're fine. This isn't their stories. Exactly. Nellie would become the main force behind the creation of state and local fair employment practices department. Like, so the you know, within the actual government, um, which would much later become the Minneapolis Civil Rights Commission and the State Human Rights Department. Damn! She spearheaded the drive to create a statewide initiative of the Minneapolis Legislation of Employment Practices. So, like, they, it was a Minneapolis thing, you know, kind of like I said, for unions. So she wanted it to be statewide. Um, So it was in call, called the Employment Practices Act, and it came to be in 1955. She also authored an initiative from the Minneapolis NAACP that led to the desegregation of the U.S. Armed Forces. Shit! Right. Are you serious? Yeah. Sorry, I'm just I mean, I'm sure it went through a few changes after she authored the initial draft. Right, but still, that that she had a hand in that. Right? Like, Minnesota, what's up? (laughs) Um, So she started having differences with the Communist Party in 1946, and that'll come to a head a, a few years later, and I'll get to that. That makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, in 1950, she was fired from her job at the Minneapolis Athletic Club. It does. It never said why. I can't she believe she's fired. still working I there. Know. But it might be a what else was she going to do kind of a thing. Right. October of that same year, she resigned her position as chair of the Progressive Party. She lost her union election the following year. It was mainly because of, uh, the left wing of unions and in parties were kind was kind of waning like you know the oorah for that was kind of like eh, we've done enough do. it's fine you know don't worry about po- it there's a political pendulum and it was yeah. starting to swing in favor of less radical people in 1951 so about five years after she started having issues with the communist party that's when she formerly severed her ties with them and she also severed her ties with the progressive party that, you know, she was like, you're going in a direction I don't like. Yep. I don't want to be associated with you anymore. Valid. She did, however, start raising money for the freedom marches of Martin Luther King Jr. Yes. So she's still staying active. She's just kind of like, I'm not going to be associated with these more radical parties anymore. Well, and I I understand the benefit of political parties and political organizations because, you know, you kind of get a bunch of people with similar ideals together and then they become organized exactly. and then they're more powerful because they're strength in numbers. But just because you don't subscribe to a specific party doesn't mean you can't still act on your ideals. Right. You know, like I'm not going to my like local 
political party chapter and doing stuff, but I'll donate money to organizations and causes that mean a lot to me. But you also see the opposite of that where, you know, some people, even if their political party is going against their beliefs, they're like, no, this is my political party. I need to stick with them. And that's not not good. Yeah. So she, you know, since she was a nanny and stuff and her mom had taught her to sew, she decided to become a seamstress. And in 1963, she opened her own sewing and alteration shops in downtown Minneapolis, which ran for over 30 years. Um, It was originally known as Nellie's Shirt and Zipper and then became Nellie's Alterations. I love, no, I like shirt and zipper. That's so cute. Um, And she would continue to stay active in state and local politics. She was Van Freeman White's uh, campaign manager in his successful 1979 bid for the seat on the Minneapolis City Council, which he was, I think, the first African-American elected to the city council, if I remember right. She would actually travel to Africa on behalf of the State Department with Vice President Walter Mondale in 1980, and Governor Rudy Perpich appointed her the Minnesota State University Board in 1982. So she's still doing a whole bunch of shit. Well, that was why I was surprised she was still working at the Athletic Union, because, I, I mean, I guess the work she's doing is volunteer or maybe right. not a paid Doesn't position. Really pay. But I'm like, oh, no, she's doing some pretty cool-ass shit. Right. Like, I feel like she should be getting paid. She was also a member of the Democratic National Committee for a full two terms because that's an elected position. Mm-hmm. However, there was a bit of a power struggle and she was eventually ousted from the Minneapolis Urban League in 1987. And so, you know, she was just kind of like, okay, that sucks. Um, I mean, she's... <laughs> I hope she she got the news. She's like, okay. I mean, she's... That sucks. <laughs> she was born in 19... I mean, she's 80, 82 at this point. I was going to say, know, how like, old is she right now? In 1989, there was the Nellie Stone Johnson Scholarship Program was created, which I love because she's still alive. Like she's at this point. Oh, I'm, oh. She's not still alive now. At I was this point like, in my story, what? she's still alive. <laughs> oh um, my God, you almost like made my brain explode. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> um, like she's 120 something years right? old? No. The scholarship offered scholarships to minority students from union families. So, you know, stick into her roots. I was going to say, what a great way to honor her. In 2000, she released an autobiography that was titled Nellie Stone Johnson, The Life of an Activist, which I think is great. What are you doing? I'm definitely paying attention and definitely not looking to see if it's on Audible right now. That's funny. (laughs) She was a trustee of the Minneapolis Public Library for quite a number of years and a board member of the MNSCU. She received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Black Caucus of the American Association for Higher Education in 2000. She died on April 2nd, 2002 in Minneapolis, and she was 96 at the time. Damn, girl. Right? My grandma lived to be 95. That woman saw some shit. Oh, yeah. So there is a community school named for her in Minneapolis. She was an inspiration for the 1992 public work named Shadows of the Spirit by Setu Jones and Tacoma Aiken. There's also a there was a play written about her life just named Nellie that came out in 2013 that premiered at the St. Paul's History Theater. And there is a statue planned um, for the north hallway of the Minnesota State Capitol for her. Really? Yep. Oh, Nellie! I've been there. This is really cool, though. I I Googled Shadows of the Spirit, and Kelly can put a picture up. Shadows of Spirit, sorry. And it's it's, like shadows of different people, and it with like saying stuff. Yeah. That is super cool. I like that. It, you know what's cool? It looks like um, almost watermarks. Yeah, it really Like, does. they look like it's legit cool. shadows. 
So my last thing is I have a quote from her and it says, I've always been preaching a simple message. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Clear back in 1950s, it was fashionable for white liberals to go out to dinner with black people. They'd take you to a restaurant like Charlie's and people would think, well, isn't this nice? This, would ha- this wouldn't happen in some places. But I'd say to them even then, what good does it do if we can go into nice restaurants if we can't afford to order in them? Nellie. Like, and that's so valid. And I don't know, the whole, like, idea that it was fashionable for, like, white right. progressive the, that, people to be like, the, look at me dining with my black friends. Well, and it, was, it wasn't, like, yeah, and it was... It was like a pat on the back, like, oh, good job, Minnesota. Like, other places aren't necessarily doing this. Good for you. Yeah, I, you know what? And we still see that today, kind of that performative bull, and I hate it, and it sucks. (laughs) Man. That's really interesting. I didn't know any of that about like our state's history. Right? I'd never heard I know, of Nellie. I, I included some extra history in there because I was like, it's our state. Yeah. So yeah, that Minnesota. was Nellie Stone Johnson. Nellie Stone Johnson. What a fucking name. What a woman. Yeah. That's amazing. She's amazing. Who are you covering? So uh, I'm heading a little closer to home and today I'm going to be covering and whining about Alice McGaw, the mother of anesthesia. Maybe it's because I work at a hospital, but I'm like that. I, I feel like I've heard that name before. You might have because I know I go, I looked up her picture. I'm like, oh, I've seen her. I have seen her in photos. And I just never like put it together who she was. So if you have ever had surgery or even just like a dental procedure, you've probably been given an anesthetic, whether it be a local anesthetic or you're fully put under. We can all agree that surgery without anesthesia would suck. No one wants to go back to the days where they just gave you a bit of leather to bite on and told you to lie back and think of England while they sawed off your leg. Maybe a little bit of alcohol if they had it. Yeah, yeah. Like, give me some whiskey, give me some wine if you got it. Right, like, here, drink some of this, but we're also going to use it to sterilize your wound. Right? Like, dude, I feel like if I was drunk enough to not realize someone was cutting off my leg, it's not even that it would make it better for me. It would just make it better for them because I wouldn't be able to fight back. Yeah, exactly. Like it would still suck so bad. I mean, that's, that's, there's a reason one of the nurses jobs used to be like, okay, basically sit on top of this person while I do this procedure. Yeah. So anesthetic has actually been in use since before the 1200s in the form of sponges soaked in opium and mandrangora, which was taken from the mandrake plant. But for quite a while, it didn't advance much beyond opium and alcohol. Drugs and booze. Opium. Which, like, I mean, hey, I'm all here for the booze, but not if you're cutting me open. That is until dentist William T.G. Morton began experimenting with ether in 1846 to find the right dose that relieved his patient's pain while he gently yanked their teeth out of their skull. Gently. Uh As gently as possible. I mean, I, I will say... You can aggressively yank someone's teeth out versus like pretending to take some care with it. I mean, the interesting thing, I don't know if you get into this, but like ether is interesting because then there became like a big thing that doctors started using it to get high. Oh, no. Like nowadays where everyone's addicted to painkillers. Exactly. Nurse Jackie style. (laughs) They could totally reboot that show, but just like in the 1800s with ether. There's actually like in America in... Season one of American Horror Story, actually. Oh. Oh, is that the doctor who has the yeah, pink baby? Like, yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of uh, The Young Doctor's Notebook, which was a, a, a British oh, yeah. series starring Daniel no, Radcliffe. It was funny because it's Daniel Radcliffe, 
played the young doctor and then John Hamm played his like present self. Yeah, it was really Looking weird. back on his like how he got addicted to ether and opium and drugs and stuff. And yeah, it's spoiler alert. It's really good though. It's like a, it really it's is. dark, but it's like a dark comedy. Like some of the episodes are definitely a lot harder than others. But it's Leopold Leopoldovich. Anyway, eventually nitrous oxide and chloroform became popular options along with ether. Unfortunately, this often involved smothering patients and in the worst case scenarios could kill them. I'm just going to, you know, smother you with chloroform. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'll be fine. You'll wake up. Maybe. But one woman found a better way and her name was Alice McGaw. I love the name Alice so much. If I had kids, I would name them Alice. Boy, girl, don't care. Your name is Alice now. Alice is a gender neutral name. All names are gender neutral if you're not a pussy about it. So Alice McGaw was born on November 9th, 1860 in Koshkton. I don't care. You know what? Fuck off. She was born in Ohio, (laughs) but grew up in Michigan in 1881 when Alice was around 21 years old. Her family relocated to... Rochester, Minnesota, which is where we are right now. So close to home. Yeah, a little too close, maybe. There she might befriended a woman who Kelly might recognize. Oh, when I read it, I was like, okay. ooh. She befriended Edith Graham and her sister, Dinah Graham. Dinah was my cat's name. I've never heard of Dinah either. Edith is kind of the big deal, and everyone's going to learn really why. Is. Not long after, she tra- traveled to Chicago, Illinois, to attend the Women's Hospital School of Nursing from 1887 to 1889 with Edith and Dinah. Yay. Weinberg. After graduating, Alice worked as a private nurse in Chicago, but then she really relocated back to Rochester, Minnesota to work at what was then the Budding Mayo Clinic. Ever heard of it? It's still here. It's still here. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. It's not, it's not so much budding anymore. Like, it's it's full bloom. It's like a raging monster. <laughs> in a good way. Depending on who you ask. So her friend Edith Graham had already gone to the Mayo Clinic to work as a nurse. Actually, this was technically before it was the Mayo Clinic. It was like the Mayo family practice, but I'm going to call it Mayo Clinic because no one actually cares when it became the Mayo Clinic. So Edith was at Mayo working as a nurse and was trained as a nurse anesthetist by the Mayo brothers themselves, Dr. William J. Mayo and Charles H. Mayo, and we affectionately call them Will and Charlie. Yeah, they've we got do. statues. Kelly and I have taken it's pictures great. with them. We have. What's up? <laughs> so here's a little background on the Mayo Clinic for, you know, our non-Rochester listeners, which most of you are, but we have a pretty decent listening Outside, base in Rochester. Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> so it started with William Oral Mayo or W.W. Mayo. W.W. actually had an impressive resume and kind of did a little bit of everything in his life. But when he wanted to start his own medical practice, he chose Rochester, Minnesota, because the Twin Cities, which for the uninitiated is Minneapolis and St. Paul, uh, they were already saturated with docs doling out cocaine for the ghosts in your blood. Yay. It's like there's a doc on every corner willing to pump you up full of cocaine. I'm going to go where they have fewer doctors and fewer competition for me so smart ww's sons will and charlie learned under their father and established the mayo clinic as we know it i have in 1903 i don't know if that's correct but they established the mayo clinic the mayo family practice creepy side note 
The largest mass execution that has ever taken place in the United States took place in Mankato, Minnesota, which is like two hours away from us. And it was like a bunch of indigenous peoples who had risen up against unfair practices. And so that rebellion was quashed. Everyone was executed. WW got his hands on one of their skeletons, one of the murdered people's skeletons. And that's what Will and Charlie used to learn what the skeleton looks like. You're off by about 14 years. Okay. I think th- I think that's when WW started his practice, but the Mayo Clinic no, 1889. proper. What? Mayo Clinic founded September 30th, 1889. Okay, here's the thing. WW started practicing much earlier, but the Mayo Clinic proper was not founded until later. Okay, so maybe 1903 is when Mayo Clinic proper was yes. founded. So to put it bluntly, Will and Charlie are big fucking deals. They've got statues all over this fucking town. They took one of them down, though. There was one of the two of them standing in their surgical scrubs outside of the Civic Center, and that's no longer there because they, they did the Redo remodeling. The yeah, when, I, I they don't know where they put it. Else. I don't know where I they put know. it. They have a mansion. There's the, the Mailwood mansion. Oh, it's, it's gorgeous. Stunning. Anyways. Oh, my heart. Anyway. So Edith working with them was also a huge deal. Also a big deal. Edith ended up marrying Dr. Charlie. And that's why we know her as, as Edith Graham Mayo, not doctor, yep. just Edith Graham Mayo. So after the marriage and 650 surgeries, mind you, Edith would retire from nursing, but she knew the perfect person to replace her, her old school chum, Alice McGaw. Yay. So Edith persuaded Alice to return to Rochester and begin working at the Mayo Clinic as a nurse anesthetist. That's going to be real hard for me to say. Everyone just deal with it. Just drink more wine. It'll be fine. Okay, hold on. Hold on. Anesthetist. Anesthetist. Drink. Yeah, everyone drink Anesthetist. Emily says anesthetist. It's a lot. I wrote these notes and somehow neglected to think that I would be drinking, mm-hmm. so... Alice was now working in the St. Mary's Hospital, which had just been built after Rochester was ripped to pieces by a tornado. So, like, we had a little group of nuns, the the, the Franciscan sisters, mm-hmm. and they were doing their thing and teaching nuns and doing their stuff. And a tornado ripped through Rochester and left us totally devastated. And the Franciscan sisters were like, This city needs a proper fucking hospital. So they go to WW and they're like, we need a hospital. And you're like the big doc on campus. Make it happen. And he's like, if you can raise the money for this shit, I'll provide all the medical staff. And the (laughs) nuns are like. Because the nuns became the nurses. Yes. not The nuns started working there as nurses. And some of like the most notable women who started at the Mayo Clinic were Franciscan nuns. So. The, the nuns are like, challenge accepted, bitch. And they raise the money. And there yeah, is really actually did. a statue of like the lead Franciscan sister. I can't remember her name. Like shaking hands with WW. WW yeah. So that's how we got St. Mary's. So Saint, she's working at this newly built hospital. Thank you, tornadoes. <laughs> so the founding of St. Mary's allowed the Mayo brothers and their father to move their surgical practice from a home to a real hospital setting. Because they were like, we're just going to cut you up open the... T- over the kitchen table, it's fine. Don't they worry had like about a it. Little they had like a little surgical. They had like a little surgical suite. It yeah. was fine. So there's only one little problem with Alice's new job: the methods for anesthetizing patients before surgery sucked mm-hmm. almost as much as just not having it. Right. So at the time, the common method for administrating anesthes- 
anesthetic fuck was the choking or smothering method. I like that. Which the anesthetic of choice was was applied to a towel, gauze, or conical sponge, and then used it. To, it was used so to smother the patient. What you see in kidnapping movies is what yeah! they used to do to you before you had surgery. Like, like they take a pillow covered in chloroform and they're like, shh. It's fine. It's uh, just go to sleep. Count backwards <laughs> from a hundred. Right. Wait, is she still breathing? <laughs> Keep counting so I know you're alive. God, I I had surgery and they had to put me fully under, and I was like, I wonder if I like try to stay awake, what would happen? And then I realized I super didn't want that. Right. You're like, why? I think Never I got mind. to like eighty nine, and See, that's I don't even all I remember. remember. I don't remember count. Like I, I vaguely do. remember them asking me to count, but I can't tell you what number I got to. I had one of. Of the one of the surgical technicians was a mother of some of the kids I worked with at the daycare, and I recognized the last name on her badge. I was like, "Oh, are you so and so?" So much. She's like, "Yeah, I thought you looked familiar. I recognized your eyes." And I'm like, "Does that mean you're gonna take good care of me?" Aww. I was already like doped up before I even got in the surgical room. Well, yeah, they so. put you under it. They start they, they start stuff. drugging you up. Yeah, not enough, but like enough. Not like you're out but like enough yeah where you're you're super chill you're not gonna like start having a panic attack when they will you in because i thought about it i was like i don't know if i like this so back to anesthetic and basically like smothering someone until they're almost dead mostly dead not entirely some doctors believe that asphyxiate asphyxiating their patients a little helped but alice asserted quote Ether should not be combined with asphyxia. No. Bold statements, people. Bold, revolutionary statements. So she and the Mayo brothers also insisted on using ether. Alice remarked, quote, Ether kills slowly, giving plenty of warning, but with chloroform, there is not even time to say goodbye. Which is chilling. That's so gross. Yeah, like the fact that you can overdose on chloroform and it's so basically easily. like one second you're fine and the next second you're just gone. Yeah. For anyone who wants to travel back to the past, this is your only warning. It was a horror show. Yeah. So instead of smothering her patients, Alice used the open drop technique. Uh, so she would use an S-March inhaler, which was like a wireframe mask covered with cloth. So imagine like a typical oxygen mask, but instead of plastic, it was wire mesh with like cheesecloth or something yeah. on it. She then dripped the ether onto the cloth from a can before slower, slowly lower it slowly lowering it over the patient's face and then putting it over their mouth and nose instead of like, and she would like lower it, lower it over their face versus just being like yeah, face instead sucker. Of being like, let me yeah. just hold this to your face until you can't breathe. Because people found it like really aggressive to just like face hugger a patient. Yeah, no, that was- <laughs> In addition, Alice would speak calmly to the patients about how the anesthetic would make them feel. This helped soothe them, made them feel more confident in the procedure, and had the added bonus of suggestion. If patients believed that this would work, it worked better. Right. Thank you. Alice. No. Mm. What's the P word I'm looking for? Placebo. Oh, yeah. I'm like, it's not palindrome, Emily. (laughs) You know that's not right, but why is that the only P word you can think of right now? Penis. Penis. (laughs) Penis. <laughs> why, man, why did I go to palindrome? I don't know. What is wrong with me? Oh, apparently I'm just too sexually satisfied to think of penis right now. Alice said that these talks were 
quote, a great aid in producing a comfortable narcosis. Hmm. And I think that's what they're trying to do when they uh, ask you to count backwards. It's like allowing you to relax and let go. Once the patient slipped into blissful unconsciousness, Alice would switch to a less powerful ether, which she applied to maintain the patient's anesthesia during the surgery, all while being careful to position the patient's head and jaw as not to obstruct their airway. So there are photos. So like, say I'm having surgery. I'm laying on the, I'm laying on the bed. She's right here sitting at my head, applying the ether over that mask and like making sure I'm okay, making sure she doesn't OD me, making sure I can breathe. Like all that is just her. She's just doing that thing while they're cutting me open somewhere else. Using this method, Alice had to use less anesthetic, which reduced the risk of accidental overdose. Thank you, Alice. Alice said of using anesthetic, quote, In giving anesthetic, remember that you are, as it were, carrying the patient along the edge of the precipice. And while there is no need of going over, you must watch not to get too close to the edge, which I'm like. That's a good way to describe that. That's exactly exactly what she's doing because she can't measure like levels or anything. This is all just her kind of like using her experience and her witchcraft. And before it was like you're on the edge and they're really close to getting over and she's like. Doing it this way kind of backs them away from that edge and you can monitor to make sure they don't get too close. Versus just smothering you to death. Right. So Alice didn't invent the open drop technique uh, and the S-March inhaler that she used had been developed when she was like 10 years old, but she refined the technique to perfection which with evidence-based practice. Best way to do it. Yeah. So she would conduct thorough research, devouring medical journals, observing other practitioners, and document how patients responded and the different complications that would come up with different types of surgeries and types of patients. So she's using all of her real-world experience. She's taking the notes, and she's like, okay, this kind of patient getting this kind of surgery may react this way. So using this information, she made adjustments to her own technique, and she was so good that she performed over 14,000 anesthetic procedures with zero anesthesia-related fatalities. That's just saying- zero? Zero. Holy shit. Well, anesthesia-related. Like, if the Mayo brothers were fucking around, that was on them. That wasn't on her. (laughs) No, that's impressive, Not that I think they did. (laughs) Now, her research and expertise were invaluable. After all, the alternative was smothering patients with chloroform, which could kill them. Ah, like you just doing that. I'm like, I hate it. (laughs) And then knowing you're going to cut me open afterwards, I'm like, stop. No, I hate this. But since Alice was a nurse, she couldn't submit her findings to medical journals. That's dumb. (laughs) Okay. Don't, don't rip off your tiara. Screaming. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yes. Kelly got these for us because they're pretty, pretty princesses. Yeah. But it sounds like word got around about Alice and her, ins- like, almost statistically impossible success. Oh, yeah. Like, she's doing amazing. I like to think that the Mayo brothers also helped signal boost her since she was expertly anesthetizing their own patients. Like, she's working with them one-on-one, two-on-one. One on two, whatever. Depends on if they were both operating or if only one of them was. Right. Eventually, Alice was being invited to give lectures at local medical societies, and this bolstered her as an expert, and she finally had the opportunity to publish her findings. Everyone was like, yeah, she's a nurse, but like, Yay. have you heard this shit? Right. <laughs> like, she, she's she's doing everything a normal person would in the research. Just she's let her doing the damn it. thing. Right. Alice published her first article 
Observations in Anesthesia, short and sweet, in 1899 in the Northwestern Lancet, which uh, recapped a recent lecture that she had given at the Olmsted County Medical Society. This made her the first nurse anesthetist to ever be published. Yay, Alice. Ever. 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 Okay. <laughs> Throughout her career, Alice published six scholarly articles, oh, wow. which gained her international recognition and helped advance the open drop technique that she had perfected until it became the national standard. Good. Like, this is what everyone started doing. They're like, oh, you mean smothering my patients with a chloroform soaked rag? Maybe not the best might thing. stress them out and they might die. Yeah. That, is that why everyone's dying on me? Oh. Just wait till they invent soap, buddy. <laughs> now, the Mayo brothers were excellent surgeons, but the fact that their patients weren't dying from anesthesia on the regular really helped cement the Mayo Clinic's reputation as a surgical powerhouse. Dr. Charlie Mayo, who had married her friend Edith, dubbed Alice the mother of anesthesia. Oh, I and that. I don't think that's an understatement. This was also during the time when the Mayo brothers officially established the Mayo Clinic proper in 1903. See, we got around to it. But just a few late years later, Alice would leave. On May 23rd in 1908, Alice married Dr. George Kessel, a 52-year-old widower who had founded the Kessel Hospital in Cresco, Iowa. She moved to Iowa with him and acted as his personal nurse well, anesthetist. Yeah. You gotta go with who you love. Well, and it makes sense. Like, he's a doctor. You're, like, the world's Best top nurse anesthetist. nurse anesthetist. You're gonna start working with your doctor husband. Right. When the couple separated in 1919, though, Alice returned to the Mayo Clinic. By this time, the clinic had grown to include 18 nurse anesthetists. Yeah. I wonder how many there are now. There's got to be like oh, a hundreds. Lot. They always want more, though. They're yeah. like almost always hiring. That's actually a really good paying job if you if you know someone. Career change. <laughs> but many of these women ha- were had been educated based on Alice's research. Like, how cool would that be to like come back right? and see? Like, that would be amazing. And they're like, oh, my God, you're the Alice? Bitch, I have your poster in my bedroom. I love you. Unfortunately, Alice's return to Mayo was short-lived. She was suffering health complications from diabetes, which forced her to retire in the mid-1920s. That sucks. Though Alice had helped advance medicine by leaps and bounds, knowledge around her own condition still had a long way to go. Rudimentary treatments may have included taking cold baths, Wearing warm clothing, although they used warm clothing for everything back right. in the day, or wearing flannel or silk. I mean, at least they were past bloodletting at this point. Were they, though? <laughs> I Only don't know. Only like two steps past it, but yeah. they were past it. So it wasn't until 1921 when a couple of doctors discovered insulin and 1922 when the first person received insulin to treat diabetes. So she retired in the mid-1920s, and that's when they're like, insulin's a thing! And then two years later, late two years later, it's like we're gonna start giving people insulin, but yeah, it wasn't it part of the mainstream. On February seventeenth, nineteen twenty-eight, ninety-two years and four days away from my birthday, mm-hmm. Alice died from complications Aww. of diabetes in a sanitarium in here's the worst part, Wisconsin. Aww. Why? Why? Clearly, someone didn't want to deal with her. Yeah. It was her bastard ex-husband. I don't know. Probably. I know nothing about him, but I just assume. 
So she had two funerals, one in Rochester and a private family funeral in Michigan. Because I think that's where her family like mostly lived. Probably. She was buried in Pine Tree Cemetery in Corona, Michigan. And I'm a little disappointed because we have that this massive old cemetery in town. It's beautiful. Where a lot of the like early Mayo big shots are buried. So I was hoping I could visit her there. We can, however, visit her friend, Edith Graham Mayo, who helped get Alice into anesthesia in the first place, because as we always say, empowered women empower women. Yeah, they do. Legacy. In 1998, the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists, or ANA, renamed the Clinical Anesthesia Practitioner Award to the Alice McGaw Outstanding Clinical Aww. Practitioner Award in her honor. Like it that. honors the accomplishments of certified registered nurse anesthetists, or CRNAs. Uh, involved in direct patient care who have contributed to the advancement of nurse anesthesia practice. And while the method that Alice had so diligently perfected and helped popularize is now completely obsolete, I just want to say, if if someone tries to use this on you, run, because it's not cool anymore. Right, someone's (laughs) trying to say that they're, you know, an anesthesiologist or a doctor, and they put, like, some weird mesh over your face. Like, unless you're getting cancer (laughs) treatment, because then they use mesh. But if they're like, let me just drop this ether on this rag. If they say anything about ether or the open drop method, run. Uh, But she was a significant force in advancing anesthesia procedures, decreasing anesthesia-related fatalities, and helped put Mayo Clinic on the map. It was said of Alice, quote, Alice McGaw provided such leadership in the new field that her work drew more widespread attention than that of any other member of the Rochester group apart from the Mayo brothers themselves. Cheers to this hometown herstory hero who can... Contributed to me having two hip surgeries, a blood clot removal, and wisdom teeth removal, and a whole bunch of cameras shoved up my ass with little to no pain or discomfort. Cheers, Alice. I thought about, I almost did Edith Graham Mayo. I didn't have any wine left in my glass, so I just oh, used the bottle. that's okay. But yeah, I almost did Edith, but I, I found Alice like, time. I'm like... I've ne- like I've heard I've of heard- Edith. Yeah, I've never heard of Alice. I've but seen right. her like, picture I've seen the though. Pictures of yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah, and maybe I've seen her name, but just like not realized who she was because she's not really talked about. Yeah, shame so, on you, Mayo Clinic. I thought that was I don't know. I thought that was really cool because I this do. is the city where we live, and I had never heard of this herstory hero. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, I thought that was a, a fun way to celebrate our hundredth episode. So Emily, what are you thankful for? Oh my God, this is so unexpected. I don't even know what to say. I would like to thank the Academy. No, uh, I'm thankful that we made it to 100 episodes. Thank you for it's, getting us here, everyone. It really feels like we just started this yesterday. That's the crazy thing. Yeah. No, I know. It feels like we're like five episodes in and still have no idea what we're doing. I'm so- <laughs> I think it's always going to feel like that. I think that's just the imposter syndrome. Yeah, I'm I'm so thankful for all of the people we've been able to meet and connect with through the podcast, other podcasters, authors, even just like the women whose stories we cover. It's been so amazing to get to know these women, even in like the the relatively minor capacity, because obviously we're doing two women per episode. We're trying to keep these episodes, you know, between an hour and two hours tops. Right. We're not going out there reading every single possible book on the person. Right. And then right. Presenting. 
but it's been, I don't know, it's been such a pleasure and an honor. And I'm so fortunate that I get to do this with my best friend. Aww, we'll eat too. princess cupcakes with me and get dressed up in prom dresses and get us tiaras. And then I can buy her a pug table mat. I, like, I love it. I saw this. Like half of it is like pugs just going. There, there's also there's also like a drape sign that has pug screaming faces that says let's party but we already have the hundred back here and there just wasn't enough room but we'll save that maybe for a different episode or a different event yeah so be on the lookout for let's party pugs <laughs> let's party pugs kelly what are you thankful for i don't know you kind of like stole mics that's what i was gonna say like I'm just... <laughs> well you shouldn't have asked me first <laughs> i know i'm trying to like you know, be on top of it and bit me in the ass. No, I'm, I really am. I'm, I'm also thankful for all of our listeners and every, everyone that supports us, both of our significant others, you know, um, my sister-in-law and everyone else that, you know, is like, Hey, how about this woman? Or, you know, Hey, check out this. Or like, even my mom will send me stuff on Facebook and be like, like, she won't even say anything. She'll just send me a link and it'll be oh, to a yeah. woman. Tyranny has been sending me women like crazy. And I'm like, Tyranny, you're like doing my job for me. It's I love great. this. Yeah, right. <laughs> and um, I'm wearing, I'm wearing her earrings too. My oh, Tyranny originals. I didn't, I didn't even put any earrings on. That's okay. You have a tiara. No one's looking at your ears. They're all just like, damn, look at that bling. Even your dress is sparkly. Is. I like this dress. I do too. We got them from free for free from a church. Yeah. That. One of my coworkers was we like, We definitely hey. didn't steal them. It was totally legit. It actually was. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I'm thankful for all of you. Like, especially our patrons. Um, we really appreciate you donating for us and helping us get the wine. And, you know, I'm going to start tearing up. I've had too much wine. <laughs> Are you going to wine cry? I'm wine cry. Oh, we're not even talking because about I'm someone so, dying. I'm so happy. It's going to be a happy wine cry. Oh, we don't get those very often. No, we it's don't. usually, and the Nazis murdered her, and we're all going to cry now. And we're like, <laughs> I think that was the last time I almost cried on this podcast. Yeah. God, I I will sometimes cry like doing my notes when it gets really depressing, but a lot of times because I've already cried about it, I don't cry on the podcast. Oh, I uh, Kalpa Nachala got me crying oh, yeah. on the podcast. No, we both cried at that Ruth one. Coker Burks, who just had her birthday yesterday yeah. on March nineteenth. I cried doing Ooh, her story. Try not to yawn. <laughs> wine yawn. Wine brings out a lot of emotions. I know, right? But yes, so I'm, and I'm thankful for you and doing this with me. And, you know, a hundred episodes, we're still here. And we're not, yeah. you know, wanting to kill each other. And we have balloons. Yay. That were really fun to blow up. That were delicious. Oh my God. They're wine. so that good. Was delicious. Oh, this wine is something else. Holy shit. If you guys have <laughs> an I'm, extra hundred bucks I laying 100% around. I 100% agree with like, the like you can tell it's a good quality wine. Like we've had other cab sobs that are decent, but like you can... I don't know what it is it's, about it's it, but smooth. there's just like it's velvety. You it can has tell excellent mouthfeel. Good wine. It's sexy. Like all of the weird sexual innuendo in the description was definitely yeah. earned. Also, I bet it must have been so much fun to write. I would love to write like borderline that was pornographic some, that was some, like, wine descriptions. Wine critic that was like, "This is how I feel about this wine." Oh I'm my! Like, can really? I do that? that wasn't even the company. Oh shit! I want to do that. I, I want to write like borderline pornographic wine descriptions. We for should my just job. start coming coming up with our own wine descriptions. We should. 
hit the wrong button. I, I feel like I'm going to use mouthfeel way too much. Like I'm going to rely on it as nah, a crutch. Nah, nah, nah. Well, and then now you can use whatever mounting. Yes. Mounting length. That this wine takes you by the rear and just goes to town on your mouth. No. <laughs> For hours. That's gross. Well, thank you so much on that note. Thank you so much, everyone, who has helped us get us to a hundred fucking episodes. Holy shit. Thank you so much, everyone, especially our listeners and other podcasters who have supported us. We love you so much. And our patrons, this is for you. I'm giving a special sign that only the patrons will see. There's no way for anyone else to guess what it might be. Nothing at all. Or no one at trying. All. I should just do this. That's what I started with. Well, like us on Facebook at Whining About Her Street, Instagram at WAH Pod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstreet.com and our, our email is whiningaboutherstreet at gmail.com where we would love to hear from you. Suggest us women. Tell us about women in your life. Tell us about your life. Like we just, we would love to hear from you. And we also have a Teespring account. Uh, if you just search whining about herstory, you can hear about all of our sweet merch. You could also find it on our website. Uh, we also have, a, as we mentioned, a Patreon, uh, which some of you may be watching right now with all the weird hand motions. A lot of awkward hand movements. And you, for those listening not in the V, um, you can join for as little as $1. $1! And go back and watch all the weird V days. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my God. Every month we just have a V-Day. I love that. Right. Victory. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening and watching another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day, bitches. Bye. Bye.